I want to read this passage this morning because it, it finally was on my heart as I thought about how to, what to preach this morning. Because there's a phrase in the, script, in the passage this morning that, that is on our sign out front, proclaiming the excellencies of an extraordinary God. And I thought it would be fitting on this occasion to read from the text that is the reason for that phrase. And that's a phrase that I, I'm, I came up with years ago. I'm, I'm sure someone else has thought of it. But as a younger preacher, younger pastor in Maine, I was preaching through this book of 1 Peter many years ago. And in those days, there were, and there still are today, but in the, early, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, the, there were all these conferences and all these workshops on, on all these different newfangled ideas of how to do church and, and so forth and so on. And, and as a young man, I, I was trying to sort out what is it that the church is called to do? And this passage, this section has been just emblazoned upon my soul and gives absolute clarity as to why we are here. That's not for us to decide. There's been, and there will be no committee meetings deciding upon what kind of church do we want to be, what, what should we do, what we are about. It is given by God in his word. And it is clear, and it is majestic, and it is beautiful. And it's described in many places in the scriptures, but here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, the, the beauty and the glory and the purpose of the church is stated like few other places. And so I'm going to read God's word beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask God's help. 
Oh God, we are humbled even in reading the scriptures this morning to recognize that you are the sovereign God who gives his word and gives a hearing of his word. Not merely just a physical, audible hearing, but you alone are the one who can grant a true hearing with the human heart. And so as we embark upon what we trust may be, according to your will, many years of preaching in this place, this place which has never seen a sermon before, we pray that, O oh God, that you will bless the preaching of your word in this place, not only this morning, but every time your people gather. And we pray that, that you may do this for the salvation of men and women and for the glory and honor of your great name. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Next Lord's Day Sunday morning, we will, God willing, return to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and we are about to come to this marvelous scene where Jesus of Nazareth, who by all appearances is an ordinary man, will be transfigured and glorified in the presence of three of the disciples. And they will get a glimpse as to the true majesty and glory of Jesus, that he is not only son of man, but that he is son of God. It's it's a marvelous text that I look forward to looking with you at together. But we've been in the Gospel of Matthew recently seeing the interaction of Jesus with a man named Peter. Remember Peter? And Peter was a, a, a fascinating character. You you'd probably would walk away from meeting him and you'd be struck with his personality, his charisma. He was quick to speak up. He was the leader in the group and and we have recently seen in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 where God the Father revealed to Peter that this Jesus whom he loved was in fact the promised Messiah, the Christ. And so Peter says and confesses and makes that great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then of course Jesus explains to his disciples that he must suffer and be crucified and be killed and on the third day rise again and Peter takes Jesus aside and basically says Lord that's not the plan (laughs) and Jesus says to Peter get behind me Satan wow what a what a change within a few moments from from Peter being blessed by Jesus to Peter being rebuked by Jesus I reference that and bring that to your mind that that section of scripture because here now as we come to the letter which has Peter's name we know as the first letter from Peter many years later Peter is an old man he is a seasoned pastor and preacher and he has seen many trials he himself has seen the Christ Jesus Christ crucified and he has seen Christ risen from the dead Peter has been told by his master that that his days are going to be filled with trials and that, in fact, in the end, he is is going to die in a very unpleasant manner. Peter is a man who knows Christ, loves Jesus Christ. His life is acquainted with suffering, and he's writing this letter 
to believers, primarily Jewish believers in this letter, but believers, Jew and Gentile, who are scattered throughout the region that we know today as modern Turkey. And these believers in Jesus Christ at this time are experiencing great trial. The Church of Christ, which is very young in terms of years, is is under great duress, both by the Roman Empire, because they claim to worship Jesus as Christ, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the Caesars weren't too keen on any competitors to their authority. But even the locals, the neighbors and friends of these believers looked down upon them and they were experiencing great trials in their families, in their business, looked down upon because of their fidelity to Jesus Christ and the word of God. So Peter is writing to them to encourage them and to instruct them as local churches and believers how they should conduct themselves in difficult times. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we living in difficult times? We recognize this morning, and as we meet in the relative comfort of this room, as we go about our weekly, uh, our days week, on a weekly, week-by-week week basis, we, we recognize in all sobriety that we have very blessed lives, that we have brothers and sisters in other places like China, where the Olympics are being held, who are severe, experiencing severe persecution. So we recognize that we are blessed. However, these are dark days. These are days in which the truth of God, some of the most basic rudimentary truths, such as the fact that God created men and women in his image, male and female, he created them. Where even that simple basic truth, to hold to that is to be considered hateful and to be someone who is a bigot. And so to hold to the truth of God, even in the most gracious and kind and gentle manner, in our culture increasingly, is to be a person who is, you need to be ready to be persecuted, to be maligned, and even, as we're seeing in recent years, even under duress from your government. So what are we to do? As we embark upon a building project in a very visible location in arguably the least churched and most secular state in the United States, what ought we to do? I would suggest to you this morning that we sit at the feet, as it were, of the servant of God, the seasoned apostle Peter, and listen earnestly to what he exhorts the church to be and to do. For, of course, ultimately, this is not Peter's word, but this is the word of our Lord, of our God, preserved for us and given to us by the very Spirit of God. And so there are three, three exhortations or commands here that I want to draw to your attention this morning. And they're taken right from the text. You'll, you'll see, I hope, how closely they line up. But in a sense, this morning, as we start here, we want to go back to the basics. It's the name of a pastor's conference hosted by Alistair Begg in Parkside Church in Ohio every year. And as a young man, I used to go to that 
a younger man. I used to go to that conference, and, and God used it greatly in my life. I love the title. The title of the pastor's conference every single year is Back to the Basics, Back to Basics. And as we begin here as a church to meet in this place, as we pray and trust that God will bless not only the services of worship on the Lord's Day, but as there are meetings here, as biblical counseling goes on here, as, as Sunday school lessons go on here, as God willing youth meetings go on here, as, as God willing we host perhaps the community from time to time and use this facility to express the love of Christ to the Chichester community in this area, that we consider up front what it is the Lord would have for us, that we would get back to the basics. So here are, here are some three basics this morning that we want to consider from God's word. The first you find in verses 1 to 3, long for the pure milk of the word. I'm going to put it as a title, long for the word of God. Long for the word of God. Like newborn babies. We have a few babies here, uh, and we pray that God will bless as more families come and bless us with little ones. We, we pray that this will be a church that kids love to come to and that they will grow up under the teaching of the Word of God, not only in their home but here at the church. But if you've, you're a parent or you've been around, a, I mean, a real newborn baby, I mean, just maybe minutes or hours or days old, this, this little bundle of, of five, six, seven, eight pounds, or maybe ten, I don't know, you know, up. This, this little bundle, just from the womb, and one of the first tasks is to try to help this little one to eat, to, to take a drink of milk from his mother or her mother. And that little one may be slow at first to, to take a hint and to start feeding. But those of you who have been parents, you know all you have to do is you get just a little bit of milk on that little one's lips and tongue and then watch out. Because this little bundle, this little baby has just tasted something that it thinks is pretty good and it wants to drink. And if you don't give that little boy or girl milk, oh, it's going to let you know. And this little five, six, seven pounds with all of its being, with all of its lungs, is going to let everybody in the room, in the house, in the hospital know, I want milk. You think about the passion and the urgency. I mean, the whole little baby, I mean, the, the legs are going, the arms are going, the mouth is screaming. And we say, give, give, give that, quiet that baby up. There's a God-given desire because that baby doesn't know it mentally, but God made that little boy or girl to crave milk. Otherwise, it will not grow and live. The imagery here is very powerful. This is not a casual longing for the Bible. This is not a, yeah, I should be around the Bible every once in a while. This is an insatiable, urgent longing for the Word of God. 
And notice that it's, we are responsible, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the longing. We ask God for it, but we are to cultivate in our hearts the hunger and the thirst for the Word of God. Now, if we are born of the Spirit of God, we have that desire. But here we learn that those who are regenerated of the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit of God, born again, have the responsibility to long, to pay attention to that God-given desire for the Holy Word of God. Long for the Word of God. What is this word that we are to long for? It, it is this word described back up in chapter 1, verse 23. It is the very same word, verse 23, by which we have been born again. You came to life in Christ if you are saved by the gospel, the word of God, the Bible, the truths that are contained there. And God never meant for you just to hear the gospel in the Bible in a kind of one-off or infrequent way so that you just know Christ and then you move on with your life. He called you by his word to Christ so that you might grow and be nourished on the living, verse 23, and enduring word of God. On this day, we need to recognize that the Bible was around long before any of us long before this building was built, and the Bible and the Word of God will be around long after this concrete is gone and these walls are gone. The Word of God will remain. And so even while we are so thankful for this building and the, and, and the pleasantness of it and how it works well for us, and it is absolutely right and appropriate for us as an expression of thanks to God to recognize what He has done, our heartbeat, as our, even our bylaws and statements says, our heartbeat here is the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, the singing of the Word of God. But brothers and sisters, we must long for the Word of God. Why? Peter tells us in verse 2 of chapter 2, so that by it, this Word, you may grow in respect to salvation. We, when we trust in Christ, we are saved, but there's a reality in which we grow in our salvation. We are to grow up. And the only way, listen, the only way we can grow up in Christ is by being nourished on the Word of God through the public pe preaching and teaching of the Word of God, through our scripture readings at home. But we must long for it. And I know you know, what did you learn in church today? The, the pastor was telling me again I should read my Bible. Well, that's new. But we need to be reminded again and again and again, don't we? And even the most seasoned believer, we can be tempted to kind of maybe miss some of our Scripture Bible reading. Maybe, maybe other things on our calendar become a little more important than coming and hearing the Word of God and growing. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we must long for the Word of God in order to grow in our salvation. We can only be the people that God wants us to be if we are growing, and the only way we can grow is in his word. And as one other motive to it, verse 3, Peter, it's almost like he's putting a little drop of milk on our lips. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, 
And if you're a true believer, born again, you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You may have forgotten, but if you think about it, you start to think of the wretch that you were in your sins, headed for hell, lost, without hope in the world, and that God in his mercy and kindness set his love on you, sent someone, whoever it was, your mom, your dad, your Sunday school teacher, pastor, preacher, missionary, to tell you the good news that you could be forgiven of your sins by trusting in Jesus Christ Is that not kind? That God would love you so. That God would love me so. We who are sinners, unworthy, undeserving. We would be loved so much. We have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Therefore, let us long for the word of God. Secondly, this morning, in verses 4 through 8, we are exhorted to love the biblical Christ. Love Christ. The biblical Christ. Notice I'm putting a qualifier there. Love the biblical Christ. Here in this section, Peter references several Old Testament passages. Isaiah chapter 28, Psalm 118. These these passages that were in which God foretold that he would send his son, this, this Messiah, this Christ, and And the Messiah would be like a a key cornerstone upon which God would build the house. Not a physical house, but the spiritual house that is his people. And God prophesied that he would send his son, his servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was foretold in the Old Testament. He is revealed in the New Testament. But of course, in Jesus' day, as we're learning in the Gospel of Matthew, he was largely rejected by the priests, by the leaders of his own day, and by the vast majority of Israel and the Jews in the time that he walked on this earth. They saw his miracles, they heard his preaching, they knew his character was flawless. And yet the overwhelming response can be summarized by the cries of the crowd, crucify him rejected but we need to remember that the pharisees and the scribes the sadducees and the religious leaders and the general jewish populace of that day in israel it's not that they didn't believe in a christ they were looking for the christ the messiah purportedly it's just that they didn't want the biblical one when the, the one that God, through the prophets, foretold, the one that God said, this is the one I will send, this is what he will be like, this is what he will do. When he finally came, they all said, no, we don't want that Christ. We want a different one. And we must understand that that is the same situation in our day. That by and large, too many churches in our day They aren't even aware of it, maybe, but they sing about Christ. They use the name Jesus. But if you listen to what is said about that Jesus or that Christ, or if you examine, is there submission to this Christ? Is this this Jesus Lord? Is he king? Does he have authority in the church? Does, Does this Jesus able to tell people what to do, Christians? Or is he always just kind of suggesting, you know, you might want to think about this. 
In other words, it is possible to sing about Jesus, to even preach Christ, and yet you're not preaching the Jesus and the Christ of the Bible. You've made one up, picked a little bit here and there. Oh, I like this part about Jesus, not so sure about this part. There's only one Jesus and there's only one Christ. And he is the Son of God and God has sent him and God has told us about him. And this whole book is where we learn about him. That is the only Christ there is. There is no other. We have no option. We cannot piece him together. We cannot put together a Christ of our own making. There is only one true Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this Christ, that Christ we must love. The one revealed in the Bible. The one who sometimes makes us a little uncomfortable, as Peter felt a little bit uncomfortable around Jesus at times. Can you imagine the turn? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, when, when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. And then a few moments later, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Peter was not full of warm fuzzies about Jesus at that moment, I'm sure. Peter had an awe of Jesus, had a fear of Jesus, and yet, and yet, Peter loved Jesus, and he loves him still, the true Christ. And so we must devote ourselves to the Christ of the Scriptures, for that is the only Christ. And where there are things that we learn about Jesus that make us a little uncomfortable or, or guilty, it is for us to change. It is for us to confess our wrong thinking, our wrong behavior, our wrong attitudes. It is for us to conform to Christ, not the other way around. Because it is this Jesus that God the Father loves. And this Jesus, you see, is verse 4, is choice and precious in the sight of God. Oh, the Father loves the Son. Oh, He loves His Son. He is choice and precious in His eyes. And He holds His Son out to us, in essence, and says, like He said to Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is My Son, listen to Him. And only so insofar as we, like the Father, consider the biblical Christ to be choice and precious, only insofar as we love the biblical Christ should we expect the blessing of God the Father. For he will only bless us as believers and only bless a church that loves his choice and precious Son. We need to understand God's loyalty is very clear. Oh, he loves you and oh, he loves me as we sing. Oh, how he loves you and me. And oh, he does. But you must and we must understand. He loves us in his son. His son is first. And he loves those who love his son. So we must love this son. He must be precious to us, verse 7, for those who believe. We must love him, the biblical Christ, all that he is, gentle, meek, and mild, fierce and frightening, glorious and meek. This is the, Bible, this is the Savior 
and especially the Savior who came to live and die for sinners. If we, dear ones, turn away from what the scriptures say as increasingly we are doing in these days about our sin, if we increasingly as we're doing these days, I hope we're not here, but we're prone to this as as a people in this generation, the church, if, if we're nervous talking about guilt and repentance and sin, you see that if we do that, we're actually Again, we're turning to another Christ because Jesus came to save sinners. So it's hard on the front end to admit that we are who we are as sinners, but it's the only way, and it's a wonderful way, for when we humble ourselves, acknowledge that we are sinners, we find that the Savior that God sent is sufficient. He's a great Savior, and he is precious to those who believe in him. We're warned here in verse 8 that to not believe in the biblical Christ is, is actually a form of doom, that it is a form of disobedience to the word. You see, there's nothing neutral about Christ. There's nothing neutral about the word of God. It's not something for us to think on or consider or to take time to ponder. The word of God concerning God's Son is something for us to submit to and to believe and to receive and to obey. And so we love the biblical Christ. May God help us to love the biblical Christ, the Christ revealed in the scriptures, for there is no other. Thirdly and finally this morning, in verses 9 and 10, Peter exhorts us, Remember who God has made us to be. Remember who God has made us to be. Peter is writing to many of these believers are Jews. They're familiar with the Old Testament references to Israel being a chosen race. And and we're very obviously in these days sensitive to the word race there is nothing in the biblical account about anything in terms of skin color about race, about one you know, people group being more valuable than others. In fact, it's just the exact opposite. To Israel of old, God points out, I didn't pick you because you were greater than other nations. There was nothing special about Abram of Ur. And yet God in his mercy chose Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants of Israel, to be a people for his possession. But God's plan never was for Israel alone. Rather, through even his promise to Abraham that God said, in your seed, your descendants, I will bless all nations, all peoples. And so Peter is writing to Jews and Gentiles, and he's using these titles that were used of Israel of old for the church, for believers in Jesus Christ, This is true of us today if we are in Christ. By God's doing, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter's referencing again here Isaiah. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 43, 21. 
God there says he refers to us, to the people of God, as, listen, quote, the people who I formed for myself will declare my praise, end quote. If we are a true church, no matter how ordinary we think of ourselves, and, and we are ordinary, I mean, again, some of you live in Loudoun, Chichester, Concord, Barnstead, I mean, not exactly, you know, if you go on the other side of the world, say, where are you from? I'm from Chichester. They haven't heard of it. Years ago, Loudon, maybe when NASCAR was popular, but I don't know about anymore. We're not all that. And yet we have to remember that by God's sovereign wisdom and choice, he has made us to be a people for an extraordinary purpose. We are not merely from our zip code. We are, by God's choosing, as it were, from heaven. We've not been sent from heaven, but what I mean is, if you've been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, born of the Holy Spirit, made adopted as a son or daughter of the living God, you're not just you anymore. And some of you got to get a hold of this. You're a Christian. You're a saint, a holy one. You say, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are if you're in Christ. Unless you want to remake the gospel, I don't want to do that. That's good. You're a saint. You're a holy one. That is the will of God, and that is the sufficiency of his son and his blood shed for you to take you from being a sinner fit only for condemnation and not only forgiving you of your sin, not only cleansing of your sin, washing you, not only adopting you, accepting you, but making you to be one of his priests and worshipers. Wow. And that's not just the guy who stands up here. You, believers in Jesus Christ, are the priests, the lead worshipers of the living God. By the word of God, I tell you this, on the authority of scriptures, you are not merely observers. You are not here to watch something happen today. You are those who enter in by faith into the holy of holies and angels in the presence of God follow your lead on the worship of the living God. That's who you are in Christ. And we must not forget it. God has made us to be a unique people. He can do that. We couldn't do it. We couldn't change ourselves. But he can do it. And he has done it. And I want you to see why then. Why does he, why does he remake us as a people? Why does he, why does he form us to be this, this royal priesthood, a holy nation, along with all believers, in all places, in all times, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the church. To proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into the light and glory of Christ. That's why we exist. In a nutshell, that's it. That's it. And how do we then proclaim the excellencies of God? Well, well, it is through the preaching. You are here this morning. Those of you who have given generously, supported this work, you are 
by God's grace, have been used of God to see that there is preaching of the gospel and of God in this place. I say this all the time, but I promise you, I would not be here this morning preaching to an empty room. If, if I do, um, you better, yeah, seek some help for me. You, as a church and a congregation, you see to it that the word of God is read, the word of God is preached in this place. The preacher, the pastor, I'm going to go to glory someday, I don't plan to go anywhere else, is going to change over the years. But that church is the church that sees that in this dark, hellish world, in the face of the gates of hell, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God is read and preached. You proclaim God and his excellencies through your support and your attendance and your participation of your local church as a member of the church. But we also proclaim the excellencies of God in how we conduct ourselves. It's not just just verbal from the pulpit and from the Sunday school rooms, not just the proclamation of God speaking about, and that is the primary way. But notice in verse 12, we didn't read this, but in chapter 2, we are to keep our behavior excellent so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We proclaim the excellencies of God with our mouths as we declare the gospel, and then our lives as we pay attention to, yes, our attitude and our behavior, holy living. We witness to men and women around us that there is a God, that he is holy, but that he can take a wretched sinner like me, change my heart, change your heart, and cause us to walk in purity and sincerity. They can't deny it. So that, with the hope, at the end of verse 12, that they might, in turn, be saved. That they, too, might hear of the good news of Jesus, confess their sin, Believe upon Jesus and turn from sin and walk in holiness and glorify God with us in the last day. You see, this building and this gospel is not merely for us who are here today. I know, you know, sometimes you talk about numbers and how many, da, da, da. We have no idea. I have zero idea of what God wants to do. It's his church. It's his plan. But I will say this. There are tens of thousands of men and women, boys and girls, driving by a few feet from here every day who have never even heard the first thing about Jesus Christ. They're in this world, and they know nothing. They have no hope. I I, I told this story recently, but there was a young man who actually was part of the work that was going on here in this facility, and and I had the opportunity to talk with him, and and he was very frightened, and I, I probed a little bit. I wondered, you know, what are you frightened of? And this young man, perfect health as far as I could tell, said to me in his 20s, I'm afraid to die. Well, I said to him, I got to tell you that uh, that's, a, that's a good thing to be afraid of. You, you should be. That's actually very sensible but you don't have to be. You do not have to be afraid of death. And you see, no one else has anything. I, I don't mean to, there are, there's a place for psychologists and for counselors with people who have 
truly medical mind thinking issues, but the vast majority of people are going to therapists and they're just giving them a pill and a little happy thought and taking your money. And if you listen carefully, they haven't given you one whit of hope because nothing's changed and you're still headed for death and this world is still messed up as it is. No hope. This culture offers no hope, especially for a younger generation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, we have the message, the gospel of the only hope there is in this region and in the world. And they need to hear it. And so we are here to proclaim the excellencies of God. We're not here to proclaim ourselves. We're glad to tell you a little bit about our church if you want. But as we say on our website, we're just not all that. And frankly, any church that tells you it is, as unfortunately some churches are these days, you dig a little bit under that and you'll be disappointed. Because it's just a lot of facade. We might be rough on the front end, a little jarring, but we're trying to just be who God has called us to be, do the best we can, but what we want to do is we want to turn your heart, your mind, the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, your attention to the greatness and the glory of God. There's no one like him. He is an excellent God. And we are here to make him known and his son, Jesus Christ. May God help us as we embark upon assembling and meeting in this place to preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Let's pray. And so, God, we commit this to you. We ask that you would help us to be faithful. We ask you to forgive us for our sins and for our ways in which perhaps by our lives and our attitude and behavior we have, we have not told the truth about who you are. We pray in these days as a church that these might be days of renewal, of reviving, not only here but among your people in this region, for the days are dark. The enemy is strong. The opposition to the gospel and the truth of God is overwhelming at times. And so we pray, as the darkness increases, may the light of your people, the gospel, shine all the more brightly, that you may receive the honor and praise and glory that you so deserve. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.